This is an ABC podcast. Money can't buy happiness. You'll hear this a lot in life, but is it true? Because some new research has found if you're struggling with money, you're twice as likely to have mental health issues. G'day, it's Dave Marchese with you on The Hack Podcast. Coming up, we get into this relationship between financial and mental well-being. A bit later, we're going to bring you the most horrifying sound in the world. What the hell is it? Keep listening if you're not too scared. First, though. You're listening to Hack. Every day, our real estate agent was messaging us, putting pressure on us to move out. On Triple J. You know, whenever we talk about renting, you let us know. It's a nightmare out there. First, there's the skyrocketing prices, but even finding somewhere in the first place can feel impossible. But what about this one? You're in a place, got a few maintenance issues that you're asking to be fixed, and then out of nowhere, you're told, get out. The place is unlivable. You need to leave immediately. Has this happened to you? Because we're hearing more and more about it. Call in 1300-0555-36. You can message in as well, 0439-757-555. What are your rights in this situation? What's stopping landlords chucking that unlivable property back on the market for other tenants? Edwina Story's got more. This is my room. Cute. Yeah. Are you feeling fully unpacked? No. <laughs> <laughs> I've got like... Emily's showing me around her new place in Sydney. She had to move into it super quickly a couple of months ago when the two-bedroom apartment that she had been renting with her sister was deemed unlivable and they were told they had to leave immediately. The rent was reasonable for Sydney at the time. We were there for two years and then the rain started happening and the extreme weather. When all of that crazy rain along the East Coast was happening earlier this year, the paint on the ceiling in their lounge room and in her bedroom started to bubble with water damage and mouldy water started to drip onto the lounge room floor and her bed. So what they did was they put a hole in the roof and then they put in a tray. But because of the rain, the water overflowed and it was mouldy and it was so disgusting. And I was lying on the couch once and this thing fell on my forehead and it was a maggot. Disgusting! On the roof, there were little white maggots. A hole above her bed was also dripping the mouldy water and a plumber had to come every three days to drain it. For months they asked for a rent reduction, but they were declined. So they pointed out that the apartment was unlivable in this state. So then the real estate got back to us and said, absolutely, you're correct. It's unlivable and unsafe. Your contract is terminated immediately. You have to leave today. What the actual f***? The lease was deemed frustrated, which means that there is no fault on either party. The premises is deemed unlivable, the rent stops, and the place needs to be vacated ASAP for health and safety. Ah, renting. So what are the responsibilities of landlords? Can they just put the place up for rent without doing repairs once the old tenants have left? I asked Leo Patterson, who's the CEO of the New South Wales Tenants' Union. The short answer is there are no obligations on the landlord to actually do anything to fix the the property. When they do put it up for lease again and a new tenant moves in and signs a tenancy contract, that tenancy contract has obligations, again, around the habitability. But there's no one checking in between whether or not 
there were any repairs to be fixed and if there were, whether they were. And tenants moving in are in a really hard position because we're not building inspectors and you're often desperate for a home. Now, this isn't to say that unlivability notices are all bad. If your rental becomes unsafe, it's helpful to be able to end the lease immediately so you're not stuck in an unsafe home. But Leo says things can get murky trying to determine if the unlivability comes from a failure to maintain the place or legit unforeseen circumstances. And it's hard to know how many of these unlivable terminations are served. There isn't government oversight of why tenancies are ending, how many are ending, which we think is a real shame because it makes it very difficult to get a sense across the whole system what kind of numbers are we talking about. But it comes onto our radar fairly frequently and after big storms and the, the year we've had with so much humidity, so much rain, it's certainly on a bit of a spike. And around Australia, rental availability is pretty tight at the moment. A vacancy rate of about 2.5 to 3.5% is considered healthy, but at the moment we're seeing 1.6% vacancy in Melbourne, down to 0.4% in Adelaide, leaving people with less options. Leo says renters definitely shouldn't avoid telling landlords about unsafe elements of their property, also because you have an obligation to let them know. But if you get an unlivability notice and you think the landlord's just trying to avoid making repairs, it can be disputed and go to the tribunal. And you technically don't have to leave until the tribunal has decided if there's been a breach. The problem comes that a lot of people don't want to dispute that notice because they still need references for the future. They still need to move and, and they don't want to have someone saying that they were difficult when it's already so hard to find a new home. And he says in most places around Australia, because we have no grounds evictions, if you don't leave on the unlivability notice, the landlord can just serve you a new notice to leave with no reason at all. Bitch, you better be joking. In Emily's case, the issue did turn out to be a strata issue, and she says she and her sister were really lucky to even be able to find a new place quickly in Sydney's tight rental market. Every day, our real estate agent was messaging us, putting pressure on us to move out, and we had the ability and privilege to be able to pivot. But not everyone can do that. Hack on Triple J. Edwina's story there and your messages are coming through really, really fast. Lisa and Mackay says, My friend lives in a house that leaks so bad they sleep in the caravan on the backyard because they'd rather stay and not complain because she knows she won't find another place. Another person says, If a landlord claims the place is unlivable, it should have to be inspected first to confirm that that they have to go and register it as such and not be allowed to rent it out again unless it's properly fixed. And somebody else says, my old real estate agent made us live in a house that had a balcony that was falling apart and we were even encouraged to use it. Look, there's heaps of comments coming through. I've got someone on the line now, Zoe from Brizzy. Hey, Zoe, what's been your experience? Hey, um, oh, look, it's been it's been a, a really rough go. <laughs> yeah. Um, so the house that myself and two other people are living in, it's like, oh, gosh, it's rough. And we've been trying to get out and, and look around and stuff. We've known that the back end of the house has been pretty bad. We paid for a building inspection ourselves, and it turns out the house is at risk of collapsing. Wow. Um, you know, yeah, the, it's, I think the real estate have been aware of the issue for some time now and stuff, and they haven't done anything about it. And when we've contacted them, they're now asking for a bond clean and 
Yeah, it's been, it's been a really rough go. So stressful. And, you know, the thing is when you're going through that stuff, it kind of impacts all areas of your life. And um, we're going to hear a bit more about that later. But, um, Zoe, thanks so much for calling in. We're getting a lot of similar stories to yours. The thing is you rarely hear politicians talking about renters' rights, do you? Like in the election campaign, if you remember, other areas of housing affordability were addressed. But for renters, not much at all. Well, one of our newest and youngest parliamentarians is Max Chandler-Mather. He's the Greens housing spokesperson and he's with us now. G'day, Max. Thanks for coming back to Hack. G'day, Dave. Thanks for having me. Basically, we're hearing from a heap of listeners that they feel like they've got no rights as tenants. Even if they find a place, they're worried about raising issues because they'll be kicked out. Is that the kind of stuff that you're hearing as well? All the time. And I think that reflects a massive empower and balance uh, for renters at the moment where, you know, I, I'm a, like, uh, since I've moved out, obviously, long time ago, I've been a lifelong renter and you have this exact experience where um, there'll be something wrong in the property. You might raise it with the real estate agent. They don't, they don't get back to you or they tell you, you know, just to put up with it. And your only option is to issue a breach notice. But you know if you do that, then they just won't renew your lease at the end of that uh, lease period. And because we have um, no grounds eviction, so, you know, a uh, landlord can decide not to renew your lease for no reason at the end of your tenancy period, then you're really held over a barrel. And, um, <laughs> yeah, I've had my own personal fair share of problems. And um, with 30% of the country, renters now are just over, then it's completely untenable to have a situation where Leo Zoe calling in and saying it's the building's about to collapse, but she doesn't, she doesn't actually have many rights um, uh, or, like, really much power to do anything about yeah. it. Like, clearly something needs to change. Well, listen, I mean, you're a politician now. What kind of changes do you think we need to be seeing? And, uh, like, uh, are there changes that politicians are talking about at the moment? Is it something that you're hearing being discussed in the halls of Parliament, renters' rights? Uh, almost not at all by the major parties, um, which, in it, which itself is deeply disappointing. Uh, it might reflect that not many of them are renters themselves. Um, but... Yeah, I mean, the changes that we've proposed in the past, uh, so in previous announcements, have been uh, national tenancy standards, so removing no grounds eviction, so compelling a landlord or a real estate agent to renew your lease unless they have a specific reason, like they want to live in the house themselves, um, introducing much more stringent minimum standards for properties, so, you know, including things like good ventilation, heating and cooling, um, good insulation as well, and... Um, proactive measures dealing with mould. And ultimately, this is about um, giving tenants basic rights over their property, but also enough power and security to push for those basic rights as well. I think, you know, the pub test, like if you're renting a house and uh, it's leaking mouldy water every time it rains, then clearly someone needs to do something about it. Um, But no, uh, in terms of the halls of power, I think renters for politicians mostly are out of sight and out of mind. They prefer not to think about it. Yeah, and it's strange because so many Australians are facing rental stress. We get the figures and it's it's escalating. A lot of people are struggling, especially in this environment. It's, it's kind of bizarre that we don't hear more about this from politicians. Massively, and we're in the middle of a massive um, rent increase crisis. In fact, it's increased. the rents have gone up by 17%. Um, uh, over the the last since over the last twelve months alone, and actually we're going to have a big announcement about that tomorrow, which I can't reveal much more now. Oh. But in the past, yeah. <laughs> but um, so listeners should stay tuned to that tomorrow. We'll be in the media about that. But um, in in the past, we've talked about forms of rent control as well, and 
Um, I think that, um, and certainly we've, we've made repeated calls during the federal election to that effect. And, you know, I think um, this is this situation, we've got this situation basically where the entire housing system is set up to make money for banks and property developers, but not really to provide people safe and secure housing. Uh, and um, it's something that we're going to have to deal with because house prices are so expensive now that I'm sure there's a lot of your listeners out there who've given up on ever buying a home. They're settling into rent long term, but they're dealing with a set of rent laws that mean the landlord can put up the rent by as much as they want uh, at the end of any lease and kick them out if they ask for any basic rights. All right, well, we're going to have to leave it there. Greens housing spokesperson, uh, Max Chandler-Mather, thanks so much for coming on Hack. Thanks, Dave. Thanks for having me. We've got some messages coming through. Somebody says, I had a property manager tell me, don't play that game when I asked them to fix the oven, which was broken for six months. Absolutely deplorable. Another person says, I just had to do an emergency move out of my St Kilda apartment and caused me to have chronic bronchitis. There was mould from structural issues. Window frames were rotting. Lots and lots of messages and experiences. I want to get another perspective now um, from real estates. And with us is Tim McKibben, the CEO of the Real Estate Institute of New South Wales. Hey, Tim, thanks for coming on Hack. Pleasure, Dave. Look, there are some real horror stories out there. We've been hearing about them. And whenever we talk about the renting situation, they flood through and nobody's claiming all landlords are bad or all real estate agents are not helpful. But it does seem like there are some big issues that need to be addressed. There, there are some big issues. There's no, there's no doubt about that. I was surprised uh, with your previous uh a uh, person who you were interviewing mentioned that governments weren't doing anything about it. In uh, Victoria and the ACT, there there is now legislation that's either been passed or is in the process of being passed, which will introduce um, no grounds evictions uh, will be uh, um, uh, unavailable, and uh, also some rent controls and some other issues. And and also in New South Wales, there is a bill on the floor of the lower house been put up by the Greens. Yeah, so, um, I saw uh, yeah, that. So I'm a bit surprised. Yes, I'm I a bit surprised that, that your previous speaker said that the government had no interest in this. Well, and also during the pandemic, we saw some state governments, I think in Victoria, they had um, some rent freezes put in place and those sorts yep. of things during those situations. But I think what's being talked about here is a national plan to deal with this issue. Do, do you think, I know you represent the Real Estate Institute of New South Wales, but would it be more helpful if there was this national framework to deal with? Yeah, difficult when you talk about uh, a national framework because we have different legislation uh, in each state. So I think you've got to harmonise that first. But look, at the, at the end of the day, we, we do need to have a balance between the rights of the, of the landlord and the rights of the tenant. Now, I mean, no doubt the, uh, uh, the examples that are being put through to you today about some of the, some of the difficulties the tenants have uh, experienced, I mean, no doubt that they are all accurate. And on the other side of the, of the coin, there are incidents where the landlord's property is substantially damaged, and uh, and and that also causes a great deal of problems. But but again, you know, we do need to get this right, and it does need to be a recognition, I think, of the rights of both of both parties. One of the concerns that I have is is about a, is about the supply and affordability of the property that's coming. We we need more uh, rental properties coming into the market, and what concerns me is that if we make investing, and I have to underline that, investing in residential rental property unattractive as compared to 
other investment opportunities than people that would have become residential landlords put their money elsewhere. And I think that just makes the problem worse. And that's something that I am concerned about. Well, look, there are so many issues and we're seeing disputes between tenants and landlords, very high levels. Like I was looking and it was up to 100,000 cases listed in state and territory courts and tribunals every year. So it's obviously a huge problem and there needs to be some kind of, um, you know, attention focused on it. Wish we had more time with you, but we're running out of time. Tim McKibben from the Real Estate Institute of New South Wales. Thanks for coming on Hack. Thanks, Dad. Hack. Look, it found that the link between money and our mental health is absolutely connected. On Triple J. Look, we're moving on to something that's kind of related because some new research is out today that shows a strong link between our financial well-being and mental health. The reports found people struggling with money are at least twice as likely to encounter mental health issues than those who aren't. And you can guess who's most impacted by this, young Australians struggling with things like rent, what we were just talking about, cost of living, insecure work. You know, we hear that money can't buy happiness and older people will often say, you know, we were happier back in the day when we had nothing. But is it true? We've got an expert with us now. Dr. Grant Blaschke is the lead clinical advisor for Beyond Blue. Grant, thanks for coming on Hack. Yeah, great to chat, Dave. It's so true. Money can't buy happiness. But I tell you what, when you're under the pump and you've got financial stress, it can really knock your mental health around. Yeah, and we're, we're seeing this research that's out today that Beyond Blue's been involved in. It was kind of interesting, this one, because I saw that Beyond Blue teamed up with ASIC, which is Australia's big financial regulator, to commission this research. Get onto that in a bit. But firstly, was it surprising, the results? Like, do you think it's surprising? Uh, there are probably people out there thinking, of course, if I had more money, I'd be happier. Yeah, it's so true. You look at something like this and you go, well, that's obvious, isn't it? But I think the main thing is once you document this and you actually get the data, this has big implications for improving policy and actually saying, like, this is what's going on. We better integrate much better our mental health and our financial support services for young people because it's a real problem out there. What kind of mental health issues are people more likely to face if they're struggling with finances? Do we know? Yeah, so look, as a GP, I see that, you know, when you've got financial hardship, there's really little wiggle room. You don't have much time to sort out mental health issues. And the sorts of things we see are everything from stress, you know, depression, anxiety. And you can sort of imagine that that self-talk gets into a pretty destructive mode when you've got financial trouble. And people get into a bit of a loop, you know, oh, I shouldn't have got myself in this position and how am I going to get out of it? So you can see how it it sort of dovetails into those common mental health conditions. I, I Like I said before, I found it interesting that Beyond Blue had teamed up with ASIC and I was wondering whether you think we need to be seeing more of this kind of collaboration work being done with big industries to work on mental health. Like obviously um, finance is one of them, but other industries as well. Yeah, look, I think there's such an obvious link there and we need to start dealing with these problems in a much more integrated way as a society. I think also there's lots that individuals can do when they find themselves. Like, you know, I'll see young people that come to the clinic 
and I'm gobsmacked, but they've got, you know, tens of thousands of dollars of parking tickets that they've got into debt for and they just can't look at it anymore or, you know, as you said, rental stress. And it's really quite awful for them. And a couple of things I say is be really kind to yourself. So park that sort of self-blame and can happen to anybody and try to get onto these issues early before they really compound. And often small steps can help. You know, it can just seem like this overwhelming mountain when you, you start with it. Sometimes finding a mentor, someone who's not going to judge you, maybe a family friend or a business person you can really sit down with. So there's lots individuals could do. The only other thing I'd say is I think that, you know, social media has sort of weaponized FOMO now. And if you're sitting there looking at friends or celebrities living these sort of unattainable lifestyles, that doesn't help you. So stop following some of them as well and curate some of your social media. Yeah, interesting point there. I'm speaking with Dr. Grant Blaschke from the from Beyond Blue about this study into financial well-being, but mental well-being as well. We're getting messages coming through. Someone says money can't buy happiness, but stressing about money can sure rob you of happiness. Lou from Melbourne says 100% can confirm that financial hardship puts your mental health at risk. I was brought up below the poverty line. Now I'm struggling with severe financial hardship. I don't believe money makes you happy, but I would be happier if I had enough to survive without constantly trying to scrape by. Um, Grant, I wanted to ask you, does it work the other way? Like if you improve your mental health, are your finances likely to improve? Yeah, look, it is a bit of a two-way thing. And when you think about it, I see a lot of people with mental health issues and and often your decision-making is not at its best. Um, there can often be sort of unemployment or trouble keeping your job and also problem-solving is not at its best either. So often we'll find that people that have had, you know, long-term mental health issues, it doesn't take long before their reserves run out and employment's not great and they start to run into money issues as well. So you can see from this report that it really flows both ways. I wanted to ask, because we've had a few messages about this as well, is it a little dangerous to be thinking about this, like people thinking that their happiness depends on money? I I mean, that's not what the research is saying, but that you could get the wrong idea. Yeah, it's a good point. Look, we don't want to sugarcoat it um, because people have real financial difficulties and, you know, we don't have a, a magic wand to fix everyone's financial issues and there's really sort of broad societal decisions about the way we structure things and opportunities for young people and these sorts of things. But I guess the point that Beyond Blue's making and and in this report with ASIC is that there really is this sort of two-way street and we need to start dealing with it as a combined thing. So to give you a concrete example, I'd love to see that, you know, when you go along to your GP or a mental health professional and, you know, they're asking you all these questions that they say, now, listen, do you know, are you under financial trouble? Do you know about the National Debt Helpline? Do you know about financial counselling Australia? And really hook them in with that side of things as well so it's not fragmented. It seems to make sense and a very easy way of helping that situation. Dr Grant Blushke from Beyond Blue, thank you very much for coming on Hack and breaking that down. Great to talk, Dave. And remember, if you do need some help, you can get Lifeline at any time. They're on 13 11 14. And Beyond Blue, the support service, is on 1300 22 4636. 
it's time to move on now, something a little bit different. It's the scariest noise in the world. I am the black hole. (laughs) (laughs) On Triple J. (laughs) (laughs) What you just heard was sound from a black hole. Well, actually, that was legitimate sound from a black hole that NASA released, but also mixed with some sounds of Bryce and Ebony listeners impersonating what they think a black hole sounds like. And hey, jokes aside, this audio is pretty creepy. I don't know whether you've heard it. If you haven't, here it is. NASA's released black hole track. What is that? Why there's so many ghosts in the black hole? Everyone thinks they hear something different too. Like producer AJ was like, are there whales in the black hole? I don't know. And isn't space a vacuum? How's their sound? What's going on? I'm so confused by this. Creepy. Let's get some answers. With us now is Kirsten Banks. We're Adri, astrophysicist, science communicator. Hey, Kirsten, thanks for coming on Hack. Oh, my pleasure. This is such a weird thing to talk about. It's it's blowing everyone's (laughs) mind. Were you as creeped out as everyone else when you heard the sound from the black hole? I think it was a little bit of, wow, that's really cool, but also, uh, what is that sound? (laughs) (laughs) Well, what is it? How did NASA get these sounds? So the really cool thing about this is, well, it's, it's as the old saying goes, in space, no one can hear you scream, but apparently they can. Um, usually in space, there's not a lot of stuff for sound waves to propagate through, like with air or water. But in some areas of space, like at the centres of galaxy clusters, there actually is a lot of gas, and it's enough stuff for sound waves to propagate through. And how NASA has seen these sound waves propagating through this gas around this black hole is using X-rays. So they have this X-ray telescope up in space, the Chandra X-ray telescope, that has peered toward this black hole and the surroundings around it. And they've seen differences in density of the gas around it, which is basically the same as a sound wave changing the density of the air around you. So you can hear these sounds. And they've translated that into the actual sound. Oh, my gosh. So they've pumped it up a bit, I guess you can say. But, um, look, it's, it's, pretty, it's pretty crazy what's in there. Is there a lot of info in that? Like, is there a lot we can learn from a sound wave like that? Oh, absolutely. You can tell us a lot about the activity caused by this black hole. So it's not technically sound coming out of the black hole because nothing can escape a black hole, not even light. But it's this activity that the black hole causes with the material around it that's pushing out these pressure or sound waves to then create this sound. And I must uh, come back to what you said before about it. It's been tuned up quite a lot because the actual sound from the sound waves that we detected are 57 octaves below middle C. So it had to, what you're hearing, what you heard before, is actually the frequency tuned up almost 280 quadrillion times higher 
than the original frequency. Oh, right. So there's a bit of a remix here is what we're saying with the black holes. The best remix we've ever heard. We've got some um, messages coming through. We've got uh, somebody saying, that just sounds like ice caverns. Someone else says, reminds me of a DVD menu from a horror film. Why, though? And another person says, black hole sound equals chills. Yes, it sure does. We're learning a bit more about it. Are sound waves really important in astronomy? Like, is that a part of it. We're often seeing the pictures that are being released, but Kirsten, are we also having scientists all the time listening to space? Well, we're definitely listening to space in other ways, like with radio telescopes. We can listen to the kind of the sounds, so to speak, of pulsars pulsing away. Um, but there's also a really cool thing about making space accessible to many, many people, especially those with vision impairment, is sonification. So turning this these beautiful photos into some sort of musical interpretation for us to be able to make space more accessible to everyone. And speaking of pictures, uh, I saw that scientists have released some more pics from the James Webb Space Telescope, like some beautiful pictures of Jupiter. Were they (laughs) what was expected? Oh, my goodness. I am still bouncing off the walls after seeing those photos. Oh, my goodness, they are so good. There is so much detail in them. You can see the aurora on the tops and bottoms of Jupiter. And, oh, I can't contain myself right now with the words that are coming out because it's just so incredible. <laughs> but there is so much we can learn. Like, from these photos, it is so much more detailed than what we would have expected, which is just insane with how much we can learn from this based on this detail. Very, very interesting stuff. We've still got messages coming through. Someone says, Dr. Carl's going to be really busy with this one tomorrow. He sure is. Another person says, did I miss how we got this sound? Yeah, you did miss it. And I don't have time to go back. I don't think I could explain it again. But, you know, astrophysicist Kirsten Banks did a great job. Kirsten, thank you so much for joining us. Really appreciate your time. Thank you so much. If you want to get the explanation again, it's on my TikTok, Astro Kirsten. Hack on Triple J. Big thanks to astrophysicist Kirsten Banks for all of that insight and to everyone who's messaged in with some great comments about the black hole sound and all the other stuff that we've talked about today. That is all we've got time for on the Hack Podcast for now. I'll catch you next time.